welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. So he... Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. O Holy Spirit, give us your illuminating light in our hearts and in our minds that we would understand your word and understand your Christ who is at the center of the scriptures crucified and resurrected for us. Do a good work now as we tunnel in to this passage of scripture, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I am a fan. I really enjoy bad names for businesses. I am a sucker for a really good bad business name particularly with things such as bad business names for hair salons and bars. I particularly enjoy any type of bad business name for a hair salon or bar, for instance, that ends in Z. So, this coming week, if you'd say, hey, Jim, do you want to meet out for a happy hour somewhere? I'll say, I'm not sure I have time for that, but where are you going? You'll say, we're going to Shooters. And I'll say, is that Shooters with a Z? You'll say, yes, and I'll say, I'm there, because that is a great bad business name or hair salons, I was starting to think about what are some bad names of hair salons that I've seen over the years, and then I said, well, this is why they've made the internet. So with the help of Mr. Googly, I wanted to give you some real names of real hair salons. Here we go. I'm excited. Heronoia, Jack of All Fades, A Breath of Fresh Hair, Ooh Girl, Who Did Your Hair?, I thought that would get more, but I'll keep going. Sherlock Combs. Hmm? Julius Scissor. Deja Du. And then here are, my, here are my two favorites from the list that I saw. One is Curl Up and Die. D-Y-E. And then this one is almost going too far, but I'll Cut You as the name, as the name of a hair salon. Why not? So I love bad names of hair salons and bars. I also love bad names for churches. You might come across a church that has like its name based on something from a dead language. That happens sometimes. Sometimes church names are way too long. If you've ever seen the something, 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 Fellowship Bible Church of something, 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 the URLs are massive for those sorts of things. 
And some are just trying way too hard. There was a church that started in our region years ago, and when I heard the name, I said, wow, that sounds like the name of a men's fragrance that you buy at Walmart. But here it is. It's, it's a church name. I hope the church is doing well. So plenty of bad names out there. Here is a really good church name that I came across a few years ago. I was living in Texas, ministering there at the time, and there was a new church plant that was starting in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and this is the name, St. Thomas the Doubter Church. An interesting name, right? So St. Thomas the Doubter is a historical figure from the Bible. You might know him if you know the Gospel of John as Doubting Thomas, right? So he's the guy that says, Jesus has appeared, but I missed his first appearance. And he tells the other disciples, unless I touch Jesus' wounded hands and feet and place my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. But then Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas, St. Thomas the Doubter too. A couple different layers in this name. The church planter for St. Thomas the Doubter Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area was of Indian descent, and the focus of the church was going to be trying to reach people of Indian descent, and then one step further, be a church that focuses on racial reconciliation. Church tradition and history has it that St. Thomas the Doubter, Doubting Thomas, made his way to India and was the first missionary to India. So there's that connection. And then the stuff about the Doubter. I remember I was with a group, a large group of pastors when the big name reveal, St. Thomas the Doubter Church, occurred, and all of the pastors in the room said, that is a great name because doubt is so cool right now in churches. Doubt is in. And so whether that was the mid-2000s or later on, there are a lot of streams and threads in various churches if you've been a veteran churches a little while, this is the emergent church coming from the 2000s, but other streams as well, where doubt really was an important thing. And the, and the idea is, even if you're a follower of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus is a journey into the freedom of unknowing. And it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, and we have freedom to discover our truth in the context of Christian community. And now, I believe that there is and should be place for doubt in churches. And we talk about that here. Hey, we want to be a safe place. It's on the front page of our website for honest doubts and questions to receive solid answers. All of that stuff is really important. But the flip side is that sometimes I think we can take it a little bit too far. And informally, among pastors within the Liberty Network, we have this list of authors and podcasts and blogs that so focus on the centrality of doubt and uncertainty within a faith journey towards Jesus that we get a little nervous when we hear, oh, I bought this book, or I'm reading this author, or I'm listening to this podcast. Because in our experience, those sorts of authors and blogs and podcasts are gateway drugs towards deconversion, where this is the first step of people not following Jesus anymore. But then we recognize, whether it's the mid-2000s or now, that thinking about life, the universe, and everything, whether faith expression or otherwise, is in. It's cool. And it's within the cultural air that we breathe and water that we drink where it just makes sense to raise the question, how can anybody know for sure? How can we know for sure? And the only truth that we know is not universal truth, but my truth. 
And if you're somebody that uses the phrase, this is my truth, I have no bones, no, no qualms with you, continue to use that phrase with freedom, but I'll observe at the same time from a larger shifts over the years in culture that for people to use the expression, my truth is novel in the history of the West, where in previous generations, they'd come back to us using the phrase, this is my truth, and say, I believe that the word you're looking for is pers perspective, not my truth. And in point of fact, my truth could be a contradiction in terms, where the whole thing about this being true is that it's not just true for me sometimes or true for you sometimes. It's true because in a bigger picture way, apart from me and apart from you, it's objectively true. But then also to problematize it a little bit more, there are plenty of my own friends and neighbors, and I feel this myself. Too often in the history of the world, and tragically including in the church, where you have people that claim an absolute truth, it's an equation. People plus certainty plus power equals harm. That's a thing. And we need to recognize that and understand that. I get it. But where does that leave the church as we hold on to the scriptures? You know, Jesus says, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he doesn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's my truth. What's your truth? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. As we go and read the Apostle Paul, whose writings comprise, he's the most often person that writes in the New Testament reflecting upon Jesus, he says, hey, certainty and conviction about Jesus really is important. Paul says in one place, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or another place, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced. That's not doubting, it's the opposite. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Or Paul speaking to a younger brother in ministry, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. In passages like that, the New Testament writings in the New Testament church is saying, raise the bar, find conviction, find certainty here. But again, where does that leave the church as we seek to engage our friends and neighbors? And maybe you feel some of these pulls yourself. Maybe you, you're sitting here in the room or watching where you're more comfortable with an expression, how can we know for sure? How can anybody claim that they know truth? Or maybe you're in the other direction where you're thinking, I actually would like to grow in being more convicted about the truth of the Christian story. Or anywhere in between, what direction are you being pulled in? Understanding the church that says these things are firm will seem a little weird and a little awkward and a little suspect. But here's the thing about doubting Thomas. Here is the thing about St. Thomas the doubter. He didn't stay there. And I believe that I preached on this passage on Easter Sunday just a couple of months ago. Thomas goes from saying, I am not going to believe until I touch his hands and his feet, put my hand in his side. But then later on, Jesus appears, Thomas. And Thomas exclaims, one of the biggest, boldest statements about Jesus in the entire New Testament, Jesus, 
my Lord and my God. I want to talk here this morning about how statistically, instead of going from doubt to conviction, there are plenty of adult Christians in the West that are going in the exact opposite direction, from conviction to doubt. But I want to talk here this morning for a few moments about how being convicted and firm in Jesus is beautiful and meaningful and satisfying. And it doesn't mean to be this closed-minded, head-in-the-sand, I-hate-everybody, grumpy thing. Because as Thomas understood finally all of those years ago, Jesus is crucified and resurrected, and there's grace. At the center of the story, there is grace. And so this morning, might you identify more with Elijah or with Elisha as we dig into this story. We're already deep into it, but two parts as we keep going from here. I want to talk a little more about the allure of uncertainty and then the importance of certainty. The allure of uncertainty as we speak for a moment about Elijah, but then the importance of certainty from Elisha. And so here we are. This is, it went fast to me. This is the last sermon from our little sermon series on Elijah from 1 Kings. The sun is setting on Elijah here, and it's true Later in 1 Kings and also at the beginning of 2 Kings, we see Elijah a little bit more, so he does reappear, but the spotlight isn't on him. He's not the central character as he is in these chapters that we're wrapping up. And if we're honest, Elijah is a huge hero of the faith in so many different ways, but he's imperfect like we are, and he might not stick the landing in the way that we would have expected. And there is a contrast, scholars will say here, between Elijah on one hand, I know it's a little confusing, two different characters, a J is not an SH, Elijah, and Elisha, there's a contrast between these two characters, and we'll speak of Elisha in a moment, he's all in, he's enthusiastic, he's going to follow God, he's convicted, a little bit less so with Elijah, a little more ambiguity. A little more, where is he really with these things? Is he truly convicted and committed to follow his God? So piggybacking on last week, Elijah was down in the dumps. We talked about the Eeyore, the Charlie Brown mentality, right? Where Elijah says, and I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So there's a down in the dumpsness. There's some emotional suffering. But then we also said there is some disobedience and some cowardice there in Elijah. However... At the end of last week, he was restored to doing profity things. That's a technical biblical word, profity things. So you can go back and look. God told Elijah, you're going to go do some anointing. You are going to go and anoint this guy named Hazael to be king of Assyria, Jehu to be king of Israel, and Elisha to be your successor as a prophet. Go do it. And to me, this is where it gets interesting. There is no point in the biblical record where Elijah actually goes and anoints Hazael. He doesn't do it. And likewise, he doesn't go and anoint Jehu. And what can we say here about Elijah's engagement with Elisha? Put your thinking cap on. Is this an anointing? Verse 19 of our text. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th, Elijah passed by him, cast his cloak on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back for what have I done to you? 
kind of cold interaction. We actually don't see, does Elijah actually say hi to Elisha? Is there an anointing here? Well, there's something about some cloak. Maybe it's a prophetic mantle that's being thrown in Elisha's direction. But Bible scholars will tell you that the author of this passage wants us to read this text in such a way that we're saying, I am not a smart person, but I know what anointing is. And it's not this. Because anointing, you're kneeling down, and there's oil. This is an oil-free and a kneel-free zone. So Elijah doesn't actually follow through and anoint Elisha like God explicitly told him to do. All we're left with at the end of the passage, then he arose, Elisha, and went after Elijah and assisted him. So God told Elijah, go, up, go anoint Elisha, make him your successor as prophet, and all Elisha is is like the assistant to the regional manager at the end of the day. He's just kind of tagging along a little bit, and that's all there is to it. So is Elijah decisive in following through with clarity and conviction, obeying Yahweh, the one true Lord right now? The answer is no. But how like the spirit of our age right now, where it just makes sense? How can we know? Is it even good and safe for us to find conviction about these things? And I'm not saying that Elijah is a model for us here, but let's treat him as a metaphor. And as far as it goes, I get it. A recent writer was talking about what does it mean to be a wise person in a modern, con in a modern context and put it this way. Psychologists contend that traits of the wise tend to include compassion and empathy, good social reasoning and decision-making, equanimity, tolerance of divergent values, comfort with uncertainty and ambiguity, being able to live with ambiguities. And there's one level at which I think that is great. But if it goes farther and says, well, we can't really know anything about the life, the universe, and everything, that kind of curdles. And there is this awareness where the more certain you are about life, the universe, and everything, maybe the more dangerous that you are. Another recent author said this about religious certainty. Fundamentally, the religious impulse of certainty arises from some vision of the ultimate good, some conviction about ultimate truth, some confidence in the quest for perfectibility, and some certainty about the path to the desired place and about whom to blame for obstacles in the way. The more convinced that something is true, the nastier that you're going to get towards other people. It's a zero-sum game this author is saying. And maybe you feel that pull once again, where whether life in general or faith more specifically is this glorious journey of not knowing. Who can say for sure? But I would want to double-click there and say, is that the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth at the same time? And I've been in dialogue with skeptical friends and neighbors about these very things, and I'll say, hey, you're telling me that Jim, how can you know for sure? It's kind of weird that you're saying, yeah, I, I'm convinced that this is true. You can't know things for sure. I'll turn around and say, well, it kind of sounds like you're pretty sure about a lot of things at the same time. So we can take any number of cultural issues that come to us from the right or from the left. There is a lot of certainty on both sides, sometimes of the same issues. So environmentalism, 
racism, sexual ethics and identification, capitalism. People have really strong convictions about these things. And for me, with even the things that I just said, sometimes I'll appear to tilt conservative. Other times, with other of these things, I'll appear to tilt progressive. But we have opinions. And so, for example, if you are really strongly convicted in one direction or another about sexual ethics and identifications, and then you encounter somebody who is on an incredibly different page from you about these things, you're not going to say, well, isn't it great that life is a mystery? And we can't know anything about these things at all. Who can say? No, you're actually really convicted about those things, and that's good. You see, in so many aspects of our lives, they're not mysteries, and we're wired as people to drive towards more than that. And whatever we think about any number of issues under the sun, they are tied in your mind and my mind to what we think about larger categories of ultimate truth. It's unavoidable, in my opinion. So let's just label the level the playing field a little bit. And I think as human beings, we are made and wired to be invested and invest ourselves in things that are true. One of the figures that I look to when I think about these things, I've mentioned him before, Leslie Newbigin, was an Anglican and Episcopal bishop and missionary in the mid-20th century to England. And it's a little bit like Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, where he went to India, I think, in the 50s, came back in the 70s to England and said, wow, things are really different in my home country right now. And then he started a writing career one of his key books was called The Gospel and Pluralist Society. And he was talking about how, on one hand, the world has gotten a lot more pluralistic, but then on the other hand, people aren't really pluralists because across the board, right, left, north, south, people still think that they're right. That's why they believe what they believe. He put it this way. And the one who says that the whole truth of God, speaking of Christianity, cannot be disclosed in Jesus Christ, the Christian may fairly ask... What is the source of your knowledge that this is so? How does a doubter know so much about the unknowable? And the point has to be pressed further. The most obvious feature of the unknowable reality is that each person is free to conceive it as he or she wants. The unknown God is a convenient object of belief since its character is a matter for me to decide. It cannot challenge me or pose radical questions to me. The generally held assumption that doubt is more respectable than assent to a creed is one that itself must be criticized. And one more time from Newbegin is I believe that as we move through our lives, we need something deeper and more dependable, more conviction than just saying, well, I guess this is true for me, but I don't know about anything else. Newbegin, one more time. But seeking is only serious if the seeker is following some clue, has some intuition of what it is that he seeks, and is willing to commit himself or herself to following that clue. Merely wandering around in a clueless twilight is not seeking. The relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture is a preliminary symptom of death. He wrote this in 1989. It's a long time ago now. And things have only accelerated, and I think those types of thoughts are really important, not just in any era, but in ours. So if that's the allure on one hand of uncertainty, let's talk on the other hand about the importance of certainty through the character of Elisha. He's all in. 
And there are clues throughout this short paragraph here that there is this contrast going on between the two of them. Verse 19, he departed from there, found Elisha, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now, you might not know about a lot of oxen one way or another. I'll tell you about oxen right now. 12 is a lot of oxen, if you know what I mean. Elisha has much more oxen than most people in the ancient Near East. That means that he and his family is wealthy. So he is leaving behind a lot right now. And I love the enthusiasm, the all-inness of the next verse. And he left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And then I will follow you. I'm in. And then he throws this feast. And people don't know exactly what's going on with this feast, the scholars that read this passage. But they'll say something is going on here. There is some ritual or cultic or religious symbolism to this sort of feast separating Elisha's old life from the new one that's to come. He returned from following him, took the, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh, gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after, Elisha, after Elijah and assisted him. I am leaving behind that old life, cutting ties with all of that security because I'm following Jesus now. Proleptically, I'm following God. Now, when Elisha is following in this all-in way, is he doing what is safe and reasonable? Maybe not. But what he's doing is good. And Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke alludes to this passage when he tells a group of people, Come follow me. And they say, I'll follow you wherever you go. But he comes back and says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And alluding to this passage again, Jesus intensifies it even more. Jesus, let me go back and say goodbye and take care of some things. Jesus replies, whoever sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, come on and be all in. And so that's for us to weigh. There's a call upon us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that true? Jesus says the two greatest commandments for any human being, north, south, east, west, ancient, modern, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that true? And does a life without answers ultimately satisfy? Vaclav Havel was a statesman in Czechoslovakia in the late 20th century who himself did the Thomas when he went from a place of skepticism towards Christianity, towards deeper conviction, and it was Jesus that helped him out of his uncertainties about life. He became the president of that nation, and he said this, "'Isn't it the moment of most profound doubt that gives birth to new certainties?' Perhaps hopelessness is the very soil that nourishes human hope. Perhaps one could never find sense in life without first experiencing its absurdity. What if you would raise the bar and say, I'm going to exert myself more for being all in to this Jesus? Maybe you're uncertain of those claims. Again, welcome. Thank you for being in the midst. Maybe you'll think about them again. And this is where we'll wrap up. What about the harm question? We look around the world, including we look at the church at different times, and see people plus certainty plus power equals harm. Why should we drive towards certainty in Jesus? Doesn't that cause harm? 
I would say, not necessarily if you really follow the ethic of Jesus fully, where it was Jesus himself that was harmed for us. When we remember grace, where Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, rose again, and said, the way of following me is one of forgiveness and renovation, unmerited because I earned it for you. Do we harm other people if we're, uns- if we're certain about what we believe? Not if we're truly following the ethic of Jesus who said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Totally inverting power dynamic where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's not about gaining power for yourself and leveraging it against other people. It's the exact opposite where you give it away, you give it away, you give it away. And it's grace. I've said this morning and throughout the whole history of Liberty Church Collingswood, this is a safe place to process wherever you are. The reason for that is not just because we're nice guys and nice gals, although I hope we are, but it's because Jesus died and rose again to give grace. It's okay to be in process, and we love everybody anyway, but how can you get there? How might you raise the bar? How might you take a step? What's holding you back? What do you need that you might say in a more convicted way with St. Thomas the doubter, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.